Welcome to season seven of Jesus Has Left the Building. We'll hear from guests all over the country who've been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building practices that have inspired us. Our topic of discussion has emerged out of intersectional feminism, leaning into feminist and womanist practices born out of the stories of women, ancient and modern, and are practiced by and include all people as we ritualize relationship. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, womanists, feminists, activists, scholars, authors, and liturgy makers have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Today's episode features Reverend Melek E.M. Thomas. Reverend Thomas is a senior pastor, community organizer, and scholar with a heart for liberation, creativity, and African-centered theology. Malik was one of the youngest inductees into the 35th class of the illustrious Morehouse College Martin Luther King Jr. International Board of Preachers. Malik's prophetic voice and insightful commentary have been sought by local, national, and international media outlets all over, and we found him from a recently published article called Why I'm No Longer Interested in Being a Preacher. We talk about how Melek's mother helped him to develop his philosophy of democratizing power within the church and how that democratization changes how you preach and lead a congregation. Um, Melek, we are so happy to have you on this podcast and to be sharing your story. I um, got wind of that article. It is called Why I'm No Longer Interested in Being a Preacher from the Christian Recorder, um, the American Methodist, African, African Methodist Episcopal Church um, Recorder there. I think they call it an organ, which is probably the heartbeat of their news for that um, denomination. It was posted actually on our, we have a Facebook page for the authorized ministers of the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ, where all of us, um, yeah, it was posted by the Reverend Dr. Anthony Scott, who is um, one of our conference ministers. And uh, I don't know, I don't know why, I don't know why he posted it. I don't know if there had been some grumbling around um, the idea of preaching and, and what's going on right now, I think, in all of the climate of church. But I read it and um, I'm like, oh, like, well, you might have not been coming from the feminist approach. Um, the things you were writing on really landed in my heart around what it even means to be a woman um, in ministry and a woman in the pulpit or even a woman preacher that's stepping out of the pulpit and the feelings and hardships and all of that. Um, And a lot of what it said landed in that sort of intersectional feminist criteria, which, you know, can apply to the African-American community. It can apply to the queer community. It can apply to womanist um, communities. I think that it really crossed lots of different intersections and boundaries. And then just so you know, and then I'll let you talk, um, there was a whole bunch of comments underneath this article um, from a bunch of white 
women pastors and mm. even commenting and you know I don't want to throw the festival of homiletics under the bus um, because it's a great great conference but I think and you alluded to this other preaching conference but the festival of homiletics like it's sort of that traditional same style of preaching it's huge and renowned and so many people go to it and they are but they're hearing that same that same traditional way and so it actually um created a buzz around conversation well what do you mean there's another way to preach like what does that look like and so i was like i need to talk to this guy that's the whole point so welcome welcome to this space thank you for and having me yeah, I'm really excited. Um, the first question is, you know, just to tell us a little bit about your work and the and the world that you're working in. So um, that can either be your church work or all of the amazing work that you're doing outside of the church because it's quite renowned and impressive. Um, and what does that mean to lift up voices that have not been centered in your context? But I also really want to know like the very specific personal story that you had that um, charged you to write this article. Wow. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, that is a very big, that last question in particular is a very big question. And I'm going to try to answer all of these things. Um, because I think it's a collective of my um, soon to be 35 years, I'll be 35 in October of life. Uh, I'm a child of the parsonage. Uh, my parents uh, have been preaching since my dad got his license to preach in 1977. And my mother got hers in 1978. Uh, my mother was the second woman ordained in the AME church in Baltimore. Maybe I should history. be talking to your mom. Oh, yeah, I, I think she'd be a great person to talk to. Uh, and so honestly, and, and to be honest, the first person I ever remember hearing preach is my mother. Uh, she is, so I've never known a world where women did not preach. Um, and my mother is distinctly authentic uh, and is and was a part of that initial group uh, of Black womanist preachers in the 1980s uh, that all of them, I grew up sitting around the table with them. So like I would call names like Vashti McKenzie, Renita Wings, Elaine Flake. Um, just, just the list goes on literally. I grew up around the table with them. And so I would actually say my introduction into ministry, uh, into the world was one that was distinctly black feminist, womanist perspective. Uh, my mother's PhD from Howard uh, was in communications, but it was a womanist perspective on how Black women clergy uh, respond to organizational change. This was in 1999. Uh, and so like these, you know, feminism and womanism are, are part of my upbringing. I remember when I was 13, um, I went to go with my mother to preach somewhere. My mother was preaching somewhere. I was not a child preacher. When I was 13, had anything other than preaching on my mind. Uh, and uh, my mother went to go preach somewhere. And my mother is my favorite preacher. And not just because she's my mother, but because she's an excellent preacher. She's an excellent communicator. Uh, and she went to go preach at a church on the Northeast part of Baltimore, where we're from. And um, my mother who was preached in all of these great places that has done all these great things, 
graduate of Harvard Divinity School, um, teacher of the year, three years in a row at Howard University, just all these dope things. Went to go preach at this small church in the Northeast part of Baltimore. And I'll never forget, they introduced her, read her bio from the pulpit, read, you know, she has this master's degree from Harvard, um, you know, mock trial coach of Howard and took them to be two-time back-to-back national champions uh, in the mock trial, P, you know, PhD from Howard, duh, 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 all these things. After they read her bio from the pulpit, made her preach from the floor because she was a woman. And that was the first time I'd ever seen that. And I told myself that if I ever became a preacher, I would never, ever, ever, ever preach in a place that would not let my mother preach from the same place mm, I preached from. Profound. And so that was probably one of the most informative moments of my life. And it happened long before I was even thinking about ministry. I mean, it was on my mind. I think I knew I was called to ministry when I was four years old, but I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be no child preacher. I wanted to be, you know, just run out in the streets, play and just have, have my time. Uh, and so I didn't accept my call to ministry until I was about 20 years old. And um, it's, it's definitely been a journey. I currently serve as the senior pastor of Bethel AME Church in Selma, North Carolina. I've been here uh, two years now, a little over two years. I, before then, I pastored on the west side of Chicago, uh, Christian Love Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, and before that, I actually served uh, for a year and a half as a youth pastor at a UCC church, uh, mm. Covenant United Church of Christ. So uh, I, I definitely am familiar, almost almost did, uh, did the privilege of call there, uh, but I, I felt God calling me back to my roots in the African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church. And so this particular article uh, was born out of one, watching my mother struggle to find her space as somebody who was distinctly herself. Because one of the things I don't know, particularly in, 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 in white Christianity, if, if women have to deal with this, this, this need to kind of fit in and try to yes. present in, yes. in, in masculine preaching way. So, so, so that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a, a, a particular motif in black preaching that mm -hmm. a lot of women believe in order for them to get the respect yes. they deserve that they have to present in masculine ways and preaching um so-called masculine ways in the pulpit and so my mother that's not who she is but also the women who did not present in masculine ways felt like they had to be very you know stiff they had to be very kind of stick to the script and that's never been my mother my mm -hmm. mother is a true Gemini. She, she is, her personality is so big. Before she was in ministry, she was a radio DJ. In fact, one of the first Black women on the radio in the city of Baltimore. She used to host concerts for Parliament Funkadelic. And when God called her, my mother believed that God called her, if, mm. if that makes sense. That, yes. that God didn't call her to be anybody else, but Dubai El Sababu Thomas. That is who she was, a child of the movement, former Black Panther, you know, former radio DJ, all of those principles came into who she was as a preacher. 
And I saw on one hand how impactful her preaching was to the point where now I'll go to a church and they'll find out who my mother is and they'll tell me about a sermon she preached 35 years ago mm. where 90 people gave their life to Christ, mm. literally. Mm. Like there's legends out there, it, particularly in like the, the Baltimore, DC area about my mother. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've watched how some of her colleagues in ministry, women and men alike, have alienated her or would send side comments to her mm-hmm. about the way that she presents herself. And I saw, I see her struggle with that mm-hmm. and, and her trying to fit in. And then because of that, when I went into ministry, I've been in ministry 15 years now, she would project those things on me because mm-hmm. she didn't want me to experience mm-hmm. what she experienced. Mm-hmm. It's and so for uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. for those 15 years, that's one of the things I've been struggling with. And then it, I, I know, I, I know I've been taking a long way around no, no, the mountain. You're to good. Get to you're good. I love question. it. Uh, and so in the midst of these things, um, and I won't go into too much personal detail, uh, just over the course of the pandemic, uh, my personal life was confronted with this desire to either be who I believe I was called to be, just in the fullness, this, this class clown who uh, grew up in the hip hop era, but also is somebody who's always loved history, always loved scholarship, um, just in, just craves good theology and 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 trying to be a person of substance but also i am not this like polished clean cut uh preacher that a lot of folk wanted me to be and i tried to fit that in and in the midst of this i alienated some people that i really loved and it was a conversation that i had where somebody who was very very near and dear to me said to me said, if you ever decide to be anything other than a preacher, give me a call. And I I initially thought I was the victim and I was hurt by it because, you know, we have this martyr complex in ministry. You know, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? Then I told my therapist and I just knew my therapist was gonna have my back. And my therapist said, she said, hmm, it sounds like somebody who knows who you are trying to become something, see, seeing you try to become something mm. that you're not. Mm-hmm. And immediately, just that article was about five, six months in the making. So yeah, that's that's the the long way around. But, and it's still the abridged version of the story that gets to that article. Yes, no, I, oh my gosh, so much of what you have said. First of all, just so you know, I'm from the Washington DC metro area. I was born and raised. Oh, wow. So I just want to make that connection. I love Baltimore. Woo! Great. It's so great. Yes. <laughs> I actually I what I actually worked um in the inner city of Baltimore um in my very early 20s. So um it really? is, it is oh, a place wow. for me. Yes. Um so that's totally different story. Um and then you know, also I have three kids and we're a double preacher home. And so I started to well up in the midst of some of your experiences and stories. And um, of course, um, and I have one son and, and two girls. Um and of course, you know, they're all like, there's no way I'm being a pastor to save my life. Um, this has been- I'm the only one. Ridicu- I know this has been ridiculous and, and mom. why on earth. Oh, is there, is it that they're probably like, no way that's total chaos. 
I know, I, I know that's gonna happen. Um, I know, so um, there was a lot of that. And I guess, you know, the other thing that, um, and I this might be touched on in, in a couple of other questions, but I wanna just piggyback on it right now um, is for you, because, because of your experiences and because of your prophetic voice, both locally and nationally, internationally. Um, and, you know, and what you said about your mom also being this wildly good communicator. Um, when you say all of those words and when you read it, there is this automatic translation, oh, he's a great orator in the traditional sense, right? And because that's all I know, that's what we're sort of drenched in is this idea that um, communicating and orating and preaching come in this particular form and you're either, that's your thing or it's not. And, um, and then the not, if you're not that thing, that patriarchal, that white supremacist, mm -hmm. that all of the, all of those things that have taught us how to be a preacher. If you're not, then you come up with probably what your mom sort of came up against was, well, you're not actually in um, the tribe that we need you to be in. And it's super um, uncomfortable if you're not in that tribe. And so we we actually don't wanna do ministry like that because then we're gonna be challenged and that's that's messy and just uncomfortable and, um, and scary and risky for that matter. So I guess, um, what are some of the attributes of the authentic mother preaching that that you appreciated and loved and and sort of um, also feel those same gifts in that way? What are what does that look like? Those were a lot of words about all no. of the things. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's all right. I think it looks like a deep commitment to the knowledge of self. Uh, that is something that I don't believe ministerial training really searches on. Now, we, we say it, we say, find your voice in seminary class, you know, find your voice. You, you must speak, you know, we quote Howard Thurman, you know, there's, there's something inside of everyone that searches for the sound of the genuine. You know, we say that but we don't want it genuinely like people people want what they're familiar with mm -hmm. and so particularly let's look at the emergence in my mind in America of the popular even though he would not he would not have been considered a celebrity preacher but like the standard for American preaching for years was Harry Emerson Fosdick and one of the reasons why he was that it wasn't because because before then all you really did was read sermons. But Harry Emerson Fosdick, uh, you read his sermons and you heard them on the radio. And so his preaching influenced generations of so many different types of male preachers in particular. Uh, and so even to the point where the person who's considered the dean of African-American preaching, the late Reverend Dr. Gardner Calvin Taylor said that he would listen to Harry Emerson Fosdick every week and try to be like Harry Emerson Fosdick. Gardner Taylor in turn influenced so many preachers who wanted to preach like him. And, and then, and, and it just kind of replicates itself. And so it's almost as if 
preaching in and of itself is something as, as, as an institution has become replication instead of this, this sense of development of somebody's voice. And so one of the things that I picked up from my mother was her undaunting is, cause she's still alive, uh, is her, un, her undaunting, undaunting commitment to the task of the, the moment of preaching. Like the moment of preaching is what matters is that whatever the moment necessitates, mm -hmm. she will do. Mm -hmm. uh, and my mother is from the branch of the church that would be considered Neo-Pentecostal. And so it's the laying on of hands, speaking of tongues, the casting out of devils. And to be a woman doing that in the 1980s, this is before T.D. Jakes was Woman Thou Art Loose. This is before spiritual warfare became popular. I remember hearing some churches say that my mother was a witch. And then in those same churches, 10, 15 years later, they, you know, it's, 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 it's always interesting. And so one of the things I've learned is that women and particularly black women have always paved the way for the future of the church. And so when I came into ministry in 2007, the first preachers I listened to, because I didn't grow up listening to preachers, my introduction into public speaking weren't the preachers I hung around because during church, I was either daydreaming, playing tic-tac-toe in the back of the hymnals, or I was on the corner or, or I was in the sound booth when they didn't let me leave the church because that's what they did. So my introduction to public speaking was rappers. Like, in fact, if you ever listen to me preach, rap is a big part of the way mm -hmm. that I pace myself. It, mm -hmm. it was the beginning of my love for words. Uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's, it's so rap and stand-up comedy. And my mother, if you ever get to hear her preach, is one of the funniest people that you will ever see. Because she, and she'll crack you up. And, and, and that's why even in the midst of, and I think this is the gap that we're experiencing in the church, that when the preachers were, were hoping and wishing that my mother fit this mold, the folk in the pew would beg for my mother to come back. And so the people that hated on my mother had to invite her back because of the impact that her preaching had on them. Like I remember when I was a kid, we would go to the movies to go see Independence Day, or we would go see Men in Black, or we would go to see something. And we would run un invariably every time, me, me and my siblings, we would always say, how many times is mom gonna get stopped? <laughs> because everywhere we went, it's like, oh, you preached at my church mm. and you blessed me. Da, 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 da. And we would always hear from the laypersons more than we would ever hear from the preachers. And, and to me, one of the biggest issues in authentic preaching is that preachers are often more desirous of being respected by other preachers than they are being impactful to those in the pew. And I think mm -hmm. that is what has happened mm -hmm. is that we want other preachers to respect our preaching mm -hmm. instead of our preaching being impactful to those in the pew. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that was the, that's the big lesson I learned from my mother is that at the end of the day, she was committed to the assignment, which was mm -hmm. not being respected and lauded by other preachers, mm -hmm. but it was about impacting those in the pew. No, that's brilliant, actually. That's all you have to know. What do you think, Mandy? So, I mean, I think you've really, 
talked about this a little bit, um, but we're, you know, we're really kind of looking at this idea of, um, you know, Marta and I have been doing this in the context which we serve together, and um, this is really a lot of Marta's work for her doctoral program right now, this idea of flattening structures um, and um, how, <clears throat> how we, as, as the leaders of a congregation or a community or institution or whatever, we have inherent power, right? We can't, we can't deny, you cannot deny, Malik, that you are the senior pastor of this congregation. And with that, um, with that role holds this, this power that, um, that comes with that role. And, and, you know, there is a, there is a very, very traditional and normal way to take that power and run with it and you're the boss and you get up and you preach and you have all the words and you say all the things um, and you share this wisdom with these people. Um, but even, you know, in your story about, um, I'm not going to preach in a place that won't let my mom preach here too, right? In this, in this lofty position or whatever. Um, what are, what, what are some ways that you like live into that um, in your community? How are you lifting up voices? How are you flattening structures? How are you like creating a platform for um, the people in your congregation to share that, um, share that wisdom kind of holistically? I, when I read that question in the email, I thought it was a brilliant question because this has literally been my pastoral uh, philosophy and it's taken a lot of adjustment for those in the pew yes. because they're so used to a contentious relationship between pastor and pew. And I'm, I'm coming in like, look, I'm not your enemy and I'm not your dictator. And so so particularly, I don't know how, it, if this is the case in, in in non-black churches, but in the black church, particularly black rural churches, a lot of them churches are looking for granddaddies. They want yes. an old, you know, just kind of put your yes. fist down and it's just and that's not tell I, that's me not how, how it is. Like, like I think that people in the pews so often want. I mean, I I want somebody to tell me how it actually mm -hmm. is because it would be so much easier to just have that path, right? Well, then also right. if they can't get the granddaddy, then they'll, then they'll settle for the grandmom. And, <laughs> um, and you know, when you're neither of those things, it gets to be a little rough. <laughs> or, or what they'll do is that they'll get somebody young that they think that they can, mm -hmm. can mold or is mm -hmm. malleable. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about, for me, about flattening structures or creating space for democratic leadership, which is really the way that mm -hmm. uh, my mind, this is what I say. And I say this to our leaders all the time is that I believe in democratizing power, that power belongs to each of us. We are all working out our soul salvation. Um, I'm, I'm certain you all in seminary read uh, The Witness of Preaching by Thomas Long, which is like one of those, one of those standard, those standard homiletic books, I remember. And, and in the introduction, because I, I, when I read books, I read the whole thing. I love the format. And in the introduction, he talks about what is the, the theology behind where the preacher makes the preacher's way to the pulpit, from where, from whence, right? Does the preacher come from the back uh, during service um, only to preach and then leaves? What does that theologically present to us? What does it mean for the preacher to sit on a, on a lifted 
platform away from the people where all of the eyes of the people are focused on the preacher or where, what would it mean theologically for the preacher to come from the people, from the congregation, sitting with the congregation, worshiping with the congregation. And then when it comes time to preach, come to the desk, preach. And then when they finish preaching, return to a space amongst the congregation. That is more so where, and, and when I read that, I realized that's more so where my theology is. And so um, one of the things I do as a pastor is, you know, I think we have to do that. You have to do this in United Church of Christ. I know we have to do this in the uh, in the AME Church. We have to give an annual report to the bishop and to our presiding elders. And so typically, the pastors just the pastors and a, a couple select folk put the put the uh, report together. And sometimes those reports are um, are are as just as honest as the man who tried to sell Springfield a monorail. Uh, in that episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> so what I do is that I bring my leaders together. And as we're, because this is how much we've raised, how many people we've mm -hmm. seen get saved, mm -hmm. baptisms, all that. Mm -hmm. And we bring them all together. And before I put anything on that paper, because I'm, of course, ultimately responsible because I'm the one with the appointment from the bishop, I make sure that everybody sees the same thing I see that they are documenting everything I see. And before mm. I put it on my paper, I was like, does everybody have the same, do, does everybody have the same number? If we're calculating what these offerings are, what these uh, numbers are, are, do we all have the same number? And for them, they were like, oh, we've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. But that's for me, that's what flattening structures look like. Flattening mm -hmm. structures looks like calling uh, those who are on ministerial staff with me, calling them colleagues and not just my daughter and son mm -hmm. in ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, flattening structures, you know, it's, it's about changing our language because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, people respond to what they hear. And if they hear subordination, um, prioritization, that's how they're gonna move. And for a God who was all about flattening structures, particularly through the incarnation of Jesus, where the crooked is made straight, the rough is made plain, the valleys are exalted, the mountains made low, a city that's four square. It was all about equality, equity, justice. We all mm -hmm. are, we are all on the same plane. If mm -hmm. Martin Luther got anything right, it's the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. We all have access to God. And so I believe that those are ways that I try to model the flattening structure and those are ways that other people can as well. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that, I, yeah. Do you have any th thoughts on that, Mandy, before? No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, it goes into our third question around ritualizing relationships, which in some ways you just defined. Yeah. I know that that is a phrase that is often not heard. Um, and, you know, ritualizing relationships, um, as one of our other guests had said, can be this very, um, you know, patriarchal model of forcing people into these structures and systems of ritualizing those relationships in dominating ways. And that's obviously not the way that I we are um, defining this idea of ritualizing a relationship, which is kind of goes in our to our fourth question too around. Um, valuing each person and 
drawing collective strength from each other. Um, and when we, when it's true ritualizing relationships in the intersectional feminist um, way, it is bringing all of those, allowing all of all voices, no matter what children, the queer community, um, the womanist community to the center um, is when we fully know what that means to make sacred our relationships in the world. And so I guess very practically, and I know you've given us some things, but in that worship setting, and because I just want to know mostly for my project, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. is, is, is in your liturgy, what does that look like in your worship setting? Um, creating space for shared wisdom, um, for um, a more collective community. And if there's not, that's okay. I'm just curious about what that might look like in your context. And if, and you know, it might be all the things that you've already talked about around kind of reshaping and redefining preaching. Um, but is there some other ways that that space is shared? So, so I, I and I can't take full credit for this. I mean, the, the way that I have allowed it to, to manifest is more so my idea, but the, the genesis, the inkling from this idea came from one of my best friends in the whole wide world, uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Willie Dwayne Francois. Uh, and we, we pastor together in the same time. We're not in the same space, but we've known each other for years. And his church, Mount Zion uh, Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey, he, instead of, you know, family and friends day, which is a big, you know, church day for black church, uh, he turned it into BFF Sunday, where it was called Bring Families and Friends. So that was basically a rebranding of Family and Friends Day, where you just bring folk to church. So what I did is I took the, the, the foundation of what Willie had shared with me, and I was like, you know what, let's create some, some other theological perspectives on that. One, we're going to do baptisms on that day. And so you're bringing your family and friends but you also get to see people experiencing life change. That's one piece. But then two, what I'm doing now is that at a family church, I am in a church that is in a context that historic, has historically been rural. It's becoming suburban. Is that I have a family adopt each month. It's every fourth Sunday. I have one family adopt the service for that day. And mm. so they read the scripture, they do prayer, and they also, we didn't do it this month, uh, just because August is, I don't, I don't know if August is like that at all churches, but, Ooh, you know, yes. but typically um, we have them share something about what, it, what family means to them, just a really short blurb, um, and have that share, share, them share that before the congregation. And to me, I, I think that that is the beginning, because you, you kind of got to slow walk folk into it, because people want what they it's, it's kind of like so one of my favorite musicals is Hamilton I, I, well, it's my favorite musical and I'm absolutely obsessed let me I'm before two preachers I have to be honest I am obsessed with it and so there was no way I was doing this and not giving at least one Hamilton reference it is <laughs> it is similar to that brilliant piece Farmer Refuted where you have this preacher Samuel Seabury uh, who publishes this, this article in defense of the monarchy. 
not because the monarchy was good and just and you know because he was from new england but the reason he published this was because he was afraid of what revolution might bring to the united states mm. and i think that a lot of times folk like myself and other clergy who are excited with these brand ideas we've run into churches ready to print the Declaration of Independence uh, with a church that hasn't even revolted against the Stamp Act. Mm -hmm. and, and so we have to be willing to mm -hmm. lay that groundwork. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we may not be the ones who allow for the democratization, the full democratization of power in our churches. It might be the person that comes after us, mm -hmm. but we have to be willing to lay that groundwork. And so that's what, for me, BFF mm -hmm. Sunday is the beginning of that. Uh, particularly mm -hmm. in the worship space. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And that came up a little bit with some other people too around um, what it's like to make those changes which within an already centuries old institution, right? And mm -hmm. how like, we just can't burn it all down. We have to right. like be able to take these tiny little steps and changes towards what we can envision as the beloved community in this new and fresh way. So I, um, yeah, I get that. More than anything, part of my thought around this particular season and this intersectional feminist approach was it was really important for me to hear male voices. I know that there's this new thing where, um, well, the entire platform then has to be women. And I think that there can be uh, feminist men. And I want to hear what they have to say about that. And I think that if we bring a diversity of gender perspectives into this space, for me, it it is more accessible. Um, like another man might say, oh, Melik is on this. I actually want to hear what he has to say on this particular subject. And so i I really appreciate you coming on and telling this story and publishing that article and doing all the prophetic work you are doing out there in the world. I am I'm grateful and thank you for thank you sharing for this time me. and space with us. Yeah, and man, I hope that um, my boys love their mama as much as you love your mama. I'm just like, I'm kind of blown away about, and isn't that like so telling that you have this perspective on the world and maybe you'd have it regardless, but there's something about having that um, guide in your life. Like that's how we learn how to be, how to show up differently in the world, right? We have those people who are important to us who show us the way. Yeah, and I'm and I'm very very grateful. Um, like I say, my mom is my hero, uh, and uh, not only my favorite preacher because she's my mother, but my favorite preacher because I've seen the impact uh, that her preaching does, and I often have to be the one to remind her because my mother is in her seventies now, and she's still preaching. She still thinks mm. she's in her fifties. <laughs> um, but um, years and years of patriarchy and misogyny, both. Uh, from outside and inside the home um, can gaslight you to mm, make yes. you think that you're not as impactful. I'm welling, I'm welling up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I just, in, in this part of my life, as I know that I'm a beneficiary of her wealth, 
of wisdom, of spiritual depth, I often have to remind her and I have to retell the story so that she does not forget who she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that I am grateful uh, and, and that I enjoy shade from trees that she planted, mm. shade that she may not enjoy, but I enjoy shade from trees she planted. So it, it, it is, is a duty and a responsibility of mine mm. to remind her that she is the roots of the tree under which I sit. Thank you for your good and prophetic work, my friend. Join us next week for episode seven of season seven called Leader Full, Falling into Relationship with Reverend Aaron Gilmore and Reverend Dr. Anthony Scott, Associate Conference Ministers of the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash JHLTV. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.